Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra, and pay our respects to Elders, past, present and future. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast. This panel discussion, titled Climate Change in Fiction, was recorded live at Fitzroy Writers Festival and sponsored by the Ewing Trust. The panel featured three incredible writers. Khaled Warsom contributed a piece to After Australia, an anthology in which 11 of Australia's most daring Indigenous writers and writers of colour provide a glimpse of Australia as we head towards the year 2050. His story, List of Known Remedies, is a slice of life of young Melbournians, working in cafes, talking with friends and tending to ill pets, set against a backdrop of extreme weather and increasingly authoritarian government rule. Sean O'Byrne is a writer of the short story collection A Couple of Things Before the End, a funny, bitingly satirical and outstandingly original debut told in a range of voices and styles. It includes the story Missy, told through a series of increasingly desperate pleas via email from a woman living in Malvern while Australia heats to breaking point. She is hoping to use her social contacts to get into a gated community now that the climate crisis is making her city unlivable. And Alice Robinson is the author of two novels. Her latest novel, The Glad Shout, is set in a Melbourne that has been destroyed by a catastrophic storm. Told in a starkly visual and compelling narrative, this is a deeply moving homage to motherhood and the struggles faced by women in difficult times. Thank you, the Yarra Libraries and the um, Ewing Trust, as well as City of Yarra for having us. Um, I would also like to begin by acknowledging the Wadjuri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of this land where we're gathered. I would like to pay my respects to Indigenous elders past and present, as well as any who may be with us in the audience today. With that int- lovely introduction by Sam, I think we can get straight into it. Um, we had a bit of a chat before this event, and we decided that to give you guys all a treat. We're going to have a couple of readings from um, Alice and Sean's books. And yeah, we're going to use those readings to launch into the conversation about um, climate, fiction, what's the deal with both. Um, without, I'll let um, Alice and Sean take it away. I think we'll go in with Sean first. I'm just going to test this. Please join me in welcoming, welcoming them both as well. I'm just going to check that I'm in an amplified way. Am I in an amplified way? All right, thank you. Thank you. All right, so I wanted to read this. I haven't read this in public before, but I thought it would be a good uh, sidecar to Alice's extraordinary book. For people who have read Alice's book, you'll know that so much of the action takes place in a stadium where the government is uh, either doing bad things or just not doing enough. And it occurred to me that this story uh, could be taken as something like The Voice from Canberra. When... When there are serious, when there begins to be serious privation in the city, serious privation all around the country at a time maybe in 25, 30 years, who knows, 10, 15 years, who knows, it's possible, at least worth thinking about, that something like this could happen. This is an imagined press conference by a third party leader the day after his party has won a third of the votes in the lower house. So the new Australia party in an election the night before has won more seats than any other third party in the history of the country. 
and Mr Michael Ray steps forward the next day in the Great Court of Parliament House to give this press conference and he starts it like this. Okay, okay. Well, we, uh, we had a big night last night, a big, big night. Big night for me, for us, for the party. And there's a lot to do today, some important meetings, so I'll get this part over pretty quickly. I'll just make an opening statement and then I look forward to your questions. First, let me just repeat what I said to a very, very happy crowd of New Australia supporters at the Marupna RSL Club last night. Australia, we are coming back. We are coming back. And you know, I represented my state and I represented my country with great pride. Great pride. And I'd have to say even that wasn't as good as this. I feel very personally humble with this result. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this is a beautiful day for Australia. We are coming back. But what I want to say to Australian people is this. I know that over the last couple of months, it just feels like we're all just victims of weather now. There is no doubt we have had some very, very nasty surprises in the environment, in our weather, and unprecedented hardship and real tragedy for people, for the Australian people. The relocations have hit people very, very hard, and so many have lost their homes or even a loved one. Australians will not forget and will not forgive the failure of this government, the systemic failure of the NHA and the Home Relocation Program. I have seen the pain that many have endured and continue to bear. But to all those people in Fremantle, in Brisbane, in Newcastle, in Melbourne who still suffer injuries or have lost everything and are just waiting and waiting for some assistance, for some help, and help never comes, I say to you, we are going to do all that we are going to compensate people. Those packages will be done. Those packages will be put in place. Help will be given. We're going to get those relocations done. We're going to protect our living standards and the Australian way of life. We're going to have a proper, decent life in this country. And we do have a very serious situation coming towards us now longer term with uh, food and with food security and food allocation. But here's what I want to say to ordinary Australians. Stick with us. Stick with us. It's, uh, it's all very new, all this, what happened last night. But last night was huge and we are getting very close to a situation where we could run things. We would really be in there. We could really do some things for Australia. We've got a lot of energy up in these last few weeks and months, but people need now not to go away. So uh, if you possibly can, in the next couple of days, come on down because we're really going to step it right up at the rallies. And if you're not with us yet, just come on down. Come on down and see what we are with your own eyes. Come on down to our events and the family days. Come on down and hear our speakers, the boys. The boys are out there travelling right around Australia. You'll see the boys out there in the new Australian colours. They're disciplined boys, all right? They're going to be out there in the community doing the good things, playing sport, getting food to the kids and the old people. We're going to keep the pressure right on because we can do this. We can do this. Because there's still so much we want to do to help people. Help us help each other. And, you know, I said I said last night, I talked about when I was a kid, my family, we lived up there in the suburbs, up there in the northern beaches there, up there in Brookvale, up there in Narrabeen, me and my brothers, we'd ride our bikes in the street. Just Aussie kids playing in the street together. That's how he starts. And this is how he finishes. After he's had a couple of questions about whether he really has any plans at all. And after he's faced a couple of questions about the way in which the members of his party have been uh, attacking uh, people in the street and stabbing people, he finishes his press conference like this after the last hostile question 
from a female reporter. It's funny, isn't it? People wouldn't think I get tired, but I do. I get unbelievably tired, unbearably tired of you, Tracy, and, and all the people like you, okay? The people who will never, ever understand, who will never see what I see in Australia, out in the suburbs, out in the bush, who will never understand what it really takes to make this this nation that we want, this nation, and that the blood of the West will survive and will live in the South. And, you know, I was a professional athlete. I was a professional athlete. Like, I could have stayed at home very happily, okay, very happily. And my my kids, okay, you know, you know what? Here we go. Here's the truth you can't take. Get this, Trace. Here's what's coming soon and you and your kind have no idea. I know what you think I am. I've had that all my life. But I can see things. I can see some things. And what I see is we're coming up to a very big time soon. That's just, that's just history. That's just the way it works. In history, sometimes, not often, but sometimes, you get a really big new time and big, big changes, very basic changes. And after that, we can have the good times again. And just to be real clear, I'm not asking you to help. You media, the elites, university people, or you people who think you're so clever but have never understood what the world really is, I do have a special promise for you and all the others like you. You're on the way down. We're on the way up. I can just feel it. It's all going one way. Okay. So I reckon that'll be enough for this morning. Thank you. And for the future, I really do wish you people all the very best of luck. Um, something about that voice, I'm so used to the mode of trying to unpack what they mean, what their intentions are, and what they're doing. But you're writing from the winning perspective of how they're doing it. And like reading this story really reminded me how little I actually spent listening to Trump over the past four years. Like I, there's very few times where I actually heard him speak directly to me. It was mostly endless analysis of the effects of what he was saying. But that's hearing it from the horse's mouth almost. Thank you so much. Scary. <laughs> so my story is um, about a woman called Isabel who's in her 30s and her daughter Matilda who's about three and a big storm uh, swoops in and destroys Melbourne. It's, it doesn't say in the book but in my mind it was maybe 50 years in the future. Some readers think it's further into the future um, and they end up in a stadium not unlike the MCG and this passage takes place as they're escaping the stadium because it's pretty hopeless and they're being smuggled out by a man who's going to take them to a boat so they can get on um, on the, this little dinghy and, and escape the mainland to, for Tasmania. That's their, their hope, their one hope. At first, Isabel is knee-deep across the parking lot. And then as they travel downhill away from the river and the shorefront, skirting the eastern boundary of the CBD, she moves up to her waist in the stinking sludge. The self-control it takes just to walk on without faltering is a quiet heroism of a kind she's never experienced. Like her best moments as a mother, no one sees the work. It happens in silence and unobserved, but Isabel knows. She follows the disc of torchlight around overturned cars and fallen poles and pylons, piggybacking Matilda and floating their suitcase like a tugboat fearing all the time that she would trip and lose the child to the black depths, 
Cling on tight to me, darling, she says under her breath. Pretend you're riding a horsey. She half expects Matilda to argue, but the child's knees dig into her ribs. Okay, mummy, she says in a tight, high little voice. Isabel doesn't want to think about and then can't put out of her mind what might be lurking below the waterline. Obsessively, she scans the darkness for movement, for the sound of someone coming. She tries to conjure Josh and thinks of Sean, feeling herself suspended in the water in time between the two men. A part of her longs to be unburdened from decision-making, to be a child again. In the open, there's only her skinny body, a flimsy thing with which to protect Matilda. They certainly saw people attacked in the camp for less than what she's carrying now. My father was employed there, the bloke whispers after a time, the museum. She stares where he points, the ransacked edifice and beyond, marvelling at the eerie, empty shop fronts scarred by broken windows. Perhaps some of the high-rises in the city are still inhabited, people hiding out, resisting. Without power, the tall buildings would be terribly difficult to get in and out of, blistering in the day and cold at night. The top floors might offer safety in their distance from the ground, but it's a long climb carrying provisions or a child. She's often reflected that there must have been some folks who did in fact possess useful knowledge about how to get on after the market crashed. People who came from poverty to begin with or grew up in foreign places where times were always tough. Some old people might have remembered how to survive depression, digging down through the deep turf of their experience, remembering how they were taught to darn socks and make do. She should have asked Nono more questions. His grandparents had survived war and depression living like that. Then she's read accounts of the potato famine, babies starving on filthy beds of straw. She's read of African children, vultures, the early years of Australian settlement. Some of what has transpired in her lifetime has been unprecedented, but not all of it. The hunger, the poverty, the scarce resources, it seems as though these things have always been a possibility, given that they've happened before. Yet when disaster came here, when it happened on the tree-lined streets of their own city in her lifetime, somehow no one was ready. Everyone professed such shock. Too busy what? Paying bills and shopping? Going to concerts? To restaurants? To bars? Isabel can't help but feel that some of the hardship she is facing now in the water is her own fault. She hadn't paid attention, hadn't cared enough to realise that she was being forewarned. Thank you so much for that reading, Alice. Um, I'll get straight into it, I think. Um, in a, Alice, I'll start with a question to you. Um, upon the publication of your first book, you wrote an essay in the Willis Center, which I hope you'll forgive me for quoting here. Um, you write, I sat down to write my debut novel, Anchor Point, compelled by the reading I have done on climate change, which had more than confirmed my worst fears. And you write about the genesis of the book in terms of what you're thinking about at the time and the urgency and the existential stress that we're all feeling about you know, dispolation and ruination of like the earth and what's happening in the next 50 years and the next 100 years and so on and so forth and trying to 
live our individual lives and lives within our community in the midst of all of that. You know, obviously, as writers, the first question that we have is, what's the role of writing in this? Mm. And you quote um, Jay Hillis Miller, who writes that we see the world through the literature we read and we act in the real world on that basis of that seeing. Can you um, unpack that a little bit? What can writing do? And to what extent is that tied up in, you know, this whole... I'm really fascinated by how you came to that perspective of... Because you're very deliberate in your use of the word clima- climate fiction as well. I think um, it, the, the books really came and this question of like the role of literature in climate change in, in really in, as, a, as a mode of activism against, you know, our worst fears about climate change came to me because I, I travelled all around the world like a lot of Australians after I did my degree um, trying to find a purpose, really. And when I, and this is in like the mid 2000s, and everywhere I went, people were talking about the weather. You know, this is just ordinary people in Vietnam or America or Europe. And, but, it, but the cumulative effect of all of those voices meant that when I returned to Australia in about 2007 or 8, uh, it was just on the cusp of an inconvenient truth being coming out, that, that film. So it was just, I was almost like at the zeitgeist of this conversation, it felt. And I returned to Australia and nobody was really talking about climate change. But I started to feel like something's not right here. I'm not saying that I'm the only one who thought this, that it was an original idea. But, but I felt that, you know, I kind of felt uneasy. But what I didn't really have was any practical skills, uh, it felt. And so I thought, what can I do about this? And so I tried to volunteer at series. Not very. I don't care about gardening and uh, don't have those skills. And I thought, <laughs> what can I do? And, and I remember even where I was in place, I was walking past Melbourne Uni and I suddenly thought, I wonder if you could write about this. And I wonder if that would make a difference. But I feel like that question of whether it does or doesn't, or it can or it can't, make an actual difference in the world has been something that I've oscillated over, probably like all writers, and worried about because on one level it feels a very ineffectual mode of activism and on another level as a lifelong reader and as a writer we have to believe that it does make a difference and I know from my own experience as a human that books have profoundly impacted and shaped my life. And so you're always kind of treading that line I think between a feeling of purposefulness and and power in the work and a feeling of immense uh, disempowerment and hopelessness about this platform that you've chosen to work within to make some kind of change and I think actually that anxiety is replicated in the anxiety we feel about climate change generally a sense of individual uh, ineffectuality versus the kind of the magnitude of the problem. Sean in your work you do a lot of context shifting where you in your stories your you know in the story that you just read um, Lita you very astutely narrow in on liars (laughs) because I I, I have this issue with climate change in my own head when I think about it which is that I know for a fact it's half a dozen companies it's the US military it's it's a very small list of polluters which are causing the vast majority of the effects that we're feeling and at the same time I feel so individually stressed out by climate change about what I have to do and what I'm doing and your story really yeah it's it's I think both of your work does this. Both of your work zoom in on the stuckness that comes in at the individual level. I, this is going to maybe sound pretentious. I would, I would be interested in the ways that 
human psyche, just the human, the working human consciousness will deceive itself, that it's partly a machine for doing that. So in a way, the purpose of the fiction, as far as I understand it, is to not necessarily say, look at those people who are doing it, look at the, the liars, but to sort of see what is always lying in the human itself. That, that, that the way we're set up, we just have to protect ourselves from a certain amount of information. There's just going to be an amount of information that we're just going to refuse. Um, the way the human personality organises itself is always going to partly be just an amount of that and then you start to try and you try and see the ways in which it does become something that you could really call more dangerous or excessive i think that already you can see that all these human psyches coming towards climate change is going to mean so much more overprotective distortion but i don't know there's something in it and this is this is the benefit of a fiction maybe opposed to an activism or a politics the fiction gives you a little more chance to look to, to sort of set us um set aside from the immediate job of trying to convince somebody else and to say something more like what is it in me that is like this like in what ways would i be not able to uh, accept an amount of information coming into me and then rationally do something about it um yeah and like just to bring back to the first principles where we believe that fiction has a role to play here, don't we? I feel like there's clarity around the effects of fiction, but what is going on with the intention behind it? What is the, because I know when, in the sense that um, both of your works touch on, you really touch on a vernacular Australian aspect of this crisis. There's similarities between how, we talk about this as an, an as a nation, even in the sense of you know, there's characters in both of your works who think of Tasmania as a place to flee to, and that's a specifically Australian thing. And there's an attitude that we bring to it. There's this language that's already built into it. There's a way of talking about it that we are bringing to these contexts. Does what a fiction writer need to do? Is it the same as what we as a society need to do, or is there some intermediary instructive element that the fiction writer can assume in between that? That's such a hard question. I feel like I, can, I don't know what we need to do as a society. We need some kind of radical change probably. But in terms of the work of the fiction writer, I feel like with this book and with the first book, so much of the work was actually about pushing the kind of uh, the polemical, the didactic, the stuff I really wanted to say to the back. Yeah. So that the characters, because I knew, we all know, nobody likes to be lectured to, especially when you're implicated in the lecture about all the ways that you're doing the wrong thing. And so I knew that the book would only be kind of on some level a pleasure to read or, an you know, intellectually engaging in some level if uh, I wasn't lecturing and if the character stood at the front mm. in some way. That's also something that you both do. There's elements of backgrounding this, um, the catastrophe here in your works. Um, I think in your pieces it's, it's, you know, there's a story where a character is writing a series of letters to somebody about def desperately trying to get into a gated community as the world around them burns. And there's just there's always these lists and there's always these things that are mentioned in a list, but each one of them contains this horror. I think Isabel mentioned something, there's elements of that are just in the background and you know, refugees or, yeah. or things. And yeah, what what is that a as a storytelling device, what are, what are we doing there? That what Alice said and what you just said reminded me something that the English critic um, James Wood said, where he said, and this maybe starts to go to what 
what's the separate job that a fiction does as opposed to a politics, as opposed to an mm. activism? And he said something like, and I'm going to mangle this up a bit, and Alice's book does this really successfully. It, what a fiction does is it gives you more particular pictures or a more particular sort of sequence about what the pain would be like, actual pictures of the pain. I heard this lecture where he talks about crime and punishment, Dostoevsky's crime and punishment. He says, you could make some of the arguments that that book makes, but then in that book a particular person has a particular dream where villagers come around a horse and they whip and stab the horse. They're extraordinarily cruel to the horse. And he's saying what the fiction technique is, it's making you stay for that experience it sort of and then compare it to experiences of your own the the narrative process the the decoration the 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 particular you know the sequence that you set out there must be there's a special value in that it's, mm. that's different to what a political argument or an activist event would do i also think something about and i think your work probably does this as well but one thing that i was really aware of in the glad shout was the horror is not the stadium to me or the boat or the starvation or the ruination of the land. It's the inertia, the fact that those things are, you know, we, we watch them unfolding as a reader um, all through Isabel's life from her childhood and no one seems to be doing anything about it. To me that's the horror, like when you watch um, characters go into a, like a haunted house and you think, don't go in there, but you're sort of you, you're passive, you can't prevent it. And the characters, the humans, or the people in, in my story are like the, you know, that, that passive state, which is sort of how I feel we are as a culture. One cynical reading of um, disaster or tragedy that is inescapable, especially when it comes to imagining how things are going to be and looking to history for, we all, we all think of climate change as the biggest possible state of exception there is. There's like climate change as a concept it's so existentially large that there can't be a way to grapple with it without fundamentally restructuring a society and your job as a fiction writer is, is you know as you said is to almost not so much be an oracle of some kind but to have these thought experiments going on and I think something that I struggle with understanding is any version of this that doesn't look like the versions that we're seeing in fiction and in reality, which is demagoguery, cruelty, violence. And we're, re we're replaying this and we're sitting within them and we're um, grappling with them both as writers and as readers. Is it within fiction's role to... I feel like the thing I keep on grasping at here is there's this thing that we do, which is art, and then there's an ethic that we have as citizens and people living in the world about the work that we do. One way to try and talk about it is it's the activism that isn't. So it's just the activism that sits to the side and it does a different kind of work, but I can't help but think that usually it's going to come around. You're never going to say, I don't care. I, I literally don't care whether this becomes a part of how we behave or changes anything in the world. You do, but you're also – you do have that more isolate type of intelligence or sensibility, which is like, look, I can't – I'm not going to do a bunch of jobs right away. I do want to set myself aside – and look at something that's maybe not included in what most of the politics and what most of the activism is doing. But it's only, in the end, I think, a way of saying, I hope this would be part of, sooner or later we'll join with, mm. what the politics does. Unless you really do have some super aesthetic 
position where you're like, I'm out and I'm going, my, me and my people are going to enjoy ourselves on the way. But very few people yeah. can really hold that. I guess a related question is what is the power of observation and witnessing, um, especially in, in fiction? I think that's very powerful. And I think uh, the one thing that I wanted to say that this is making me think about is that um, we can talk about these issues in the context of activism or, or the impacts, the real world impacts of these books on uh, emissions or whatever. But on some level when you're writing them, it's, it is actually an aesthetic task or a creative task. And the work, the, what, the thing that you're thinking about is how can I make somebody, how can I bring a reader along on this potentially a pretty far-fetched journey, hopefully far-fetched. Um, no, none of us want these books to be true. So those two things are kind of layered on top of each other. There's a kind of like a grand narrative. It's happening in the world, and that grand narrative is the potential collapse of the civilization and the destruction of the planet. And you're trying to address that, but you're doing it by really being concerned with these micro things, like is this a good sentence? Has the structure of these chapters, you know, are they compelling? Is someone going to want to turn? Is someone going to want to spend thirty dollars on this book? Holding all of that in your head is a funny task. And like in the terms of um, your book, for instance, one thing that's really clear from your book is there's a really there's a really clear sense that these things happen, but we don't fundamentally our lives, our tragedies, and the dramas of our lives don't change. Hmm. The way we relate to each other, we still have. We still have the drama of everyday living, and it's still going on. There's just all this other stuff happening as well. And people must have said to you, I imagine me and my family in that stadium, right? Yeah, I think so. I think people feel that it was very real, which is really alarming because I really packed that book with every one of my worst fears. You know, it was a repository for the anxieties. So to feel that the people in Melbourne and Australia think that it's likely, you know, they can imagine it happening is terrible. That's actually the sorrow of the book. Big question, but is there an ethic of writing climate fiction? We understand an idea of um, an ethic of writing fiction. We have the concerns, we have aesthetic concerns, but we also have concerns of credibility. I understand all of that, but with, mm. with climate fiction, I feel like, like you said, it's the weather nowadays. It's there, and it's... I feel yeah. like it's more than a genre. I feel like it's, I feel like it's got a similar quality of writing about the Vietnam War while the Vietnam War was happening or something like that. It's the ro big rolling ball coming down the hill about to flatten the town. We're all watching it come and we're frankly trying to get our observations in while we still have paper. I don't think that's a genre. I think it's more about what do we consider important as writers? Um, what is fiction doing? If your fiction isn't engaging with the silent issues mm -hmm. of the day, then what is it there for? It is the intersection between aesthetic and ethic, I think. But what is, how do we stretch that out into an idea of what it is? I feel like this is, sorry, this is me doing my, um, I'm, I'm thinking of thesis topics right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're doing a good job. I think um, the, the problem in the world and in fiction that's addressing climate change, and maybe it's not a problem in a negative sense. In, a, in the context of fiction, it's maybe an artistic problem. The problem is that we are the ones making the disaster happen. It's our lifestyles and the way that we live that is causing the problem, but the problem is occurring in the environment. Um, and so I think there's always a tension in nature writing or writing about the natural world or have whatever kind of framework you want to talk about. Like, are we talking about humans or are we talking about landscape and non-human entities? And who should be at the front of that story and how? 
I mean, it's hard to give a voice to land, potentially. It's the fact that we talk about those two as a binary, as, yeah. as like, you know, man and nature, land and uh, human realm and the physical realm and, like, That's the environment as a site of extraction as opposed to somewhere where we are actually the environment. I hadn't thought of that. Like, you could imagine somebody coming at it from further out saying, look, even these narratives about a bunch of people are part of the problem. Totally. Right? Yeah. I haven't right. So you just need to you just need to get to something which where the human becomes a lot less important. That we learn some real humility. It's time to stop selling stories about ourselves. I I think you could come like John Gray says that a bit in his book. But Sean, do you Straw think that's dogs. possible in fiction? No, no, I don't. And I think that the, the, the unfortunately we're stuck with the human. Humans got mm. us. Humans got us into this. Humans are going to have to get us out. There's no <laughs> way you can go from something that's not so anthropomorphic. I, I can, I can, I can respect it as an intellectual argument, but I just don't think it's going to be helpful enough in time. Humans are going to badly need stories, and they're going to have to be in them if they're going to care. Yeah, learn enough and change enough in time. Uh, just to go to something that you said before as well. I was saying a lot of things about the ethics <laughs> and the aesthetics. There's, and this goes to something that Alice said too. Like there is a there's a mixture where you want to make your story believable, and that sets up a series of choices where one of the things you um, you try and think about is, and I think this is one of the problems with this kind of fiction is how much detail do I put in that's not going to become not believable enough really quickly. Mm. And, and I thought you did this really shrewdly. You just hold enough, you introduce enough detail, but you've got to hold enough out too because if there's too much, within two months or two years, hmm. there's just going to be enough events where it's not going to be happening like that. I noticed that both of you deliberately didn't yeah, mention you really, cities and I reckon, towns. I always, yeah. Yeah. I always think of David Foster Wallace in Infinite Jest and the way he put cartridges in, and but 10 years later there's no cartridges. <laughs> And it's not we'd all we, we're all going to make that mistake in different ways, but it just it's always like this real caution about the particular form that some of the some of the events might take place. And the other one is, I still think, no matter how much you want fiction in its to the side way to come around and help to do with this, there's always got to be room for somebody to say, "I'm going to write about something that has nothing to do with climate change." Mm. Like if we're worth, I don't know if it's worth us being together and going on there'll be you know there can't be this kind of command it, economy it, to do with literature where we that, say look there's only one problem you have to concentrate is on that this even there'll possible, be different though? ways is yeah that I, always always it's i think in in the middle of any big crisis if somebody sometimes the person who was in the middle of like a huge war or some extraordinary trouble and they wrote about something which looked really frivolous or yeah. personal that can be something that we really value later. i don't mean to i don't mean to buy into i don't mean to buy too much into the romantic sense of a writer as being someone who's bravely intervening with the narratives that aren't being told and whatever but i really do think like absences are so glaring a lot of the time it's like a Sally Rooney book where it's about class but it doesn't mention race and you're like well come on <laughs> <laughs> like mm. how is that possible so it's on some level we're all dealing with very big things you know whenever you want fiction to be things that's when it stops being about anything <laughs> but um but at the same time i feel like there's a minimal level of engagement needed with sp with things like the ongoing climate catastrophe I just think um, it's really hard to write anything for like years and years of your life. So you have to be, you have to care. Yeah. So we can't mandate that writers do that um, because they might not care. Yeah. And also that you'll tell something that's useful to someone who's not like you at all if you stay closer to your own experience. So the, the anti example, say with Sally Rooney, is somebody who's quite unlike her. If she tells enough of what really happened to her effectively, 
like her people, then that travels, right? That's the literary hope that mm. even though – because it actually – I think it, it probably demonstrably doesn't work if you try and more self-consciously think, well, how can I go outside my own experience and be more responsible to as many kinds of differences yeah. I can think? You're probably going to make a bad fiction. But if you stay close and say, look, I can't – um, really think of enough of what it would be like to be other people but if i really tell enough of what it's like to be me the hope is like the literary hope is somebody else comes who's really unlike you and says i, I thought that too mm. yeah I'd i think we were talking earlier about why people read or the responses people have to works and the idea of seeing yourself in a work i guess you i guess that argument can be made it yeah yeah again this is a really difficult to tease out specifics because I don't want to go out here and be saying that this is what fiction is supposed to be doing because I don't know myself. Mm, who does? I felt like when I finished that book, the thing that I thought more, more strongly than um, I've painted a portrait of uh, future Australia was I felt I've said everything I have to say now about motherhood. Mm. And that felt really gratifying. Of course, I've got more things to say now because my kids are bigger. But, you know, like I felt that I put everything that I knew to be true, thinking to your point, yeah about that experience of early motherhood in that book. And on some level, maybe when you're writing about climate change in the way that you're pushing the didactic stuff to the back, you're doing that in your own head, well, at least I was, thinking, you know, it wasn't that it was a vehicle to talk about the other things. I cared about both of them. But on some level, I, you could only look at that out of the corner of your eye and have some other central thing at the front somehow. We've been circling this idea of... It's yeah, it is a peripheral concern. Like it's not the concern isn't peripheral, but it has to be in your periphery. We all know as writers what brings people to the page is compelling human drama. Mm. And that's what a story is. And the work that that story does has always changed. It's always been at some point it's been instructive. Sometimes it's supposed to just be a good time or an interesting thing. I understand that. And that does make sense. But there's still the stuckness around yeah, climate change. Totally. There's still the stuckness. And there would be a thing against the just tell from your own experience idea. There would be some bigger amount of what's being decided mm. altogether in a culture or society. And if you, yeah, so there'd be some exception to what I'm trying to say, which would be also like it makes me think of Patricia Lockwood's article against Updike. <laughs> where she says, I don't know if people read that, she basically says, look, the man just didn't follow enough of a new agreements we had made about mm. what sex were, about what men and women were. So there would be, yeah, some sort of superstructure that does govern what we're going to agree together is worth talking about. But I still think, as far as I understand it, that fiction's job is not not to try too much to pay attention to what the superstructure happens to be arguing for right away yeah. fiction's got to set itself just a little aside from the biggest contemporary agreements about what about having stake what about having what about stakes as a reader i'm very sympathetic to that argument but also as someone who like reviews books part of me is really uninterested in australian books that aren't interested in the combined malaise of our society the idea of reading an australian book that is tangentially interested in the relationship that we have to land, the relationship that we have to our um, waterways, our country, our, the people who live here, the original sins of our founding, the future calamities that we're like walking blindly towards. I feel like that's that level of specificity and having a stake in 
things is what I look for. I feel mm. like there's an element of there might be a there might be a prescriptive element in enjoyment as a reader sometimes because I do realize I am more interested in books that have those concerns at the forefront. In that way, um, and this is a kind of it's really hard to talk about. It sounds a bit crass, but disaster makes for a great story. Like yeah. you know, it's a ripper. Like everything could be completely destroyed. What are they going to do? Like you're going to read that thing like nothing else to find out. Mm. But the problem with climate change is that it's very likely there's potentially nothing that we can do and that everything will be bad in the end. And that poses a problem for fiction writers because it doesn't follow that lovely three-act structure where, you know, there's an epiphany and a resolution. Like the resolution is that it's all gone. And in that sense, that aesthetic problem or that artistic concern is is, um, gripping and and problematic, I think. And there'll still be information from from what seems further out. So... You could read Jane Austen and still get something that would help you with what's going to happen to us when the weather mm. gets bad. You could look at a Mrs. Elton or a, a Mrs. Bennet and think there'll be plenty of Mrs. Bennets in Malvern when the water starts to be rationed. If, lit- if, if literature, if whatever it is can stay literature, that means it's still got something to tell us what with what is permanently enough the human Mm. maybe Mm. yeah but i also want to every time i say something like this i want to come back to your idea as well because it's sort of there's something in it that's not true that you're getting at which is yeah but there's still a kind of general moving limit on what we should be paying attention to and literature would have something to do with that as well but do you think that can also be true if it's not in the like a, a noticeable absence could also do the thing that khalid's talking about it depends on the type of noticeable absence. Mm-hmm. There's, an, there's, you know, we can elide things to make a point and sometimes an absence is specifically there to draw attention to something. Mm. I think there's a level of trust sometimes with those things with an absence. I think there's, um, for example, um, Robert McFarlane's book, The Rain Heron. There's a real absence. There's a lot of absences in that book and they're so deliberate and they're so specific that you have to trust that the writer is making these statements and I feel like sorry to talk about a book um that but yeah I feel like there's Mm. certain cases where that's I don't know what I I don't understand it has to be purposeful no I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to back myself into this um opinion because I am I am half throwing provocations out there to see um um what we're thinking I think I get where you're coming from I think I get where you're coming from I I don't know the McFarlane book um, the Rain Heron. It's set in uh, indeterminate future climate catastrophe. A person lives in a mountain in Tasmania by themselves, and there's a magic rain heron that um, does stuff. It's a fascinating book, really well written. And um, but there's also the typical what I am starting to think of as like Australian environmental fiction. There's the absence of specificity with regards to place. Um, specificity. With, there's no specificity with regards to time. Um, there's no engagement with most of the knowledge that we have of of land, which mm-hmm. is and actually, which is, and the engagement of the characters with the land is through a very um, white European binary perspective of, you know, the idea of an Anthropocene and the book is concerned with an Anthropocene, even though the word's not used in the book. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting when I read about books that are quite incorrect about the Anthropocene, because that in of itself is a very specific lens into th- this time that we live in and it's interesting because it's a perspective 
but in in regards to the specific absences in those books, those are um, I don't know what I think about fiction writing that has absences done specifically in terms of place, time, character, mm-hmm. and things like that. Because I I see what's happening, and I see with the work that's being done with those deliberate occlusions. I see um, that there's a you know there's an element of that talking about us with where you can make it more specific by subtracting the specificity. The fact that you didn't mention the city that the um, flood is taking place in doesn't mean that it's not about Melbourne. Yeah. Um, but also doesn't mean that it's not about Sydney too. Like, I wonder on some level if settler Australians, you know, are anxious about place. I mean, it would make sense that they were. And uh, if we feel a kind of a... Unless you're Gerald Manane who kind of really goes there uh, about, you know, very specific places, yeah, there I, there's an anxiety to be emplaced mm. potentially or to claim an emplacing relationship with land maybe. It's good. We're saying like the good contradiction. There is a general political rule but you just need to make sure that you're breaking it as much as you can, yeah. something like that. Yeah. There are, there are overarching kind of political, yeah. what would you say, like an idea of, like a moral idea that is going to guide what you're making. Yeah. So if you go too far outside it, you'll just be seen as somebody that's not paying attention to what is th- evil or the worst. Do you think there's a sense of white cellular anxiety about talking about land and country in the long run in the sense? Do you think that there's an aspect of the way we talk about environment, climate and land and country that might be complicated by those notions? Totally. The first book that I wrote, Anchor Point, came out of my PhD project and my, my contention in that project was, or my question was, um, given the history of Australian settlement and our anxious relationship to place uh, and belonging, what does that mean for how we'll deal with climate change? And so that first book is a kind of a response to that question, which is, I think, I think the answer is that because it's not necessarily our place, we haven't looked after it, and on some level we're ambivalent about its survival, I would argue. Yeah, I think that's really shrewd. I think we've never recovered from what happened in the Howard years, that there was maybe a point, I mean, look, it was probably never possible given the history of the invasion and the the consequences of a people who did what they did and then just very badly needed not to pay attention to it or really face up to it. But what seems to have been happening since the early thousands is, and this is some of the stories in the, my, my book are about this, an attempt to hold on to what is, and it's late, late to be even trying this. I think the Morrison government is guilty of it. And, and I, an English Australia, really, mm-hmm. that, that is still not passed out. That idea is going to have a, it's going to have such a difficult death to get rid of it. It's going to pass out eventually out of Australian political and social life, but it's going to take a long time. And a lot of Australian people are going to behave really badly as it slowly goes away in front of them. They, yeah. You know, that's that's one of the most puzzling things about, like, Australian Australian culture and society. What's so, I really don't understand what's so great about England. So <laughs> 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 it's like, oh. When I was telling you before that I went travelling like so many young Australians do, I went to England, of course, because that's where you can work. And I really expected to be embraced by it like as if I was one of its citizens. And when I went there, uh, I was living in Bristol and the people in the pub that I was working in would say, like, what happened? I'd say, I'm here because, because uh, of the colony. 
and um, they say, what happened in Australia? And I realised that this history that, that I felt quite um, connected to, they didn't even know the story. And that was really shocking to me. And so, But in my kind of self-conception, it's no accident that I had that experience and it triggered an interest in climate change because that experience of thinking, ah, I'm not English, who am I, where do I belong, triggered a kind of an interest in my relationship to this place and, yeah, what that might mean for the future for me and for all of us. Going back to your point, it's it's probably true that it's harder for Australians to think about climate change because they don't like to think about this. They're not. It's not a good. Mm. It's not. It's not a good place for a lot of them to be. They just don't want to think about. Yeah, and I think maybe like to um, I think to sum it up. Also, I, I think on some part as artists, one of the useful things that artists do is they just add another voice to the conversation. And eventually there's, you know, maybe there's a shift that's happening in our national conversation, but it's not one that we can see within our lifetimes or even within the context that we live in. But 40 years into the future, there's going to be, you know, this idea of a groundswell of books emerging around this time that were all about this topic and got us all talking. Sort of, uh, that's, that's maybe how it works. But what we seem to be booked for is a nasty attempt to get back in Australia that's disappearing. Yeah. Right? But that's probably what we're booked for in the next 10, 20, 30 there's a years. Whole, there's a whole separate conversation about class and how that figures into mm. that. I know you go into that a lot in your book. Um, I just really enjoyed re- listening to that, reading the story about that woman in Malvern who was like burning under the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and she's desperate to leave to get into a gated community. It's really interesting that there's no, um, there's no script almost a lot of the time for talking about these sorts of things, not in the sense of, these kinds of conversations or in articles and books and essays, but just in the sense of like, I don't know, that free TV television gap, because I feel like there's a version of Australia that I know. And then you switch on the TV or you listen to the politicians and you realize that 70% of people are on this other conversation <laughs> and they want things that are kind of horrifying, but maybe they don't want it. Maybe it's liars again, telling them things. I don't know. I, I feel very ambivalent by the idea of an Australian conversation or an Australian mm. perspective or voice because there's, yeah, it just doesn't seem to be ever good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think um, it was interesting last year with the pandemic that we seem to have emerged from that scenario. We're very, very lucky, but it sort of fits with this idea of us being a lucky country, doesn't it? Mm. It's sort of like, a you know, reviving that historic notion, the, the lust cultural identity that you're talking about that doesn't necessarily relate to any of our experience in yeah. the world. Yeah. Is it is it a lack or is it like just this profound impoverishment of our psyches that we have? <laughs> I don't know. Some people would say against this. Some people would say, like I'm thinking of people who have made um, arguments to me that, like I would say, yes, Australia has a special problem, a special national problem, and it's never, you know, worse than some other national problems. But some people say to me, but look, you've also got a place where – because of some of the curiosities of its development, it has been able to hold on to an amount of welfare statism. It, it has fallen mm. into a, a, a pretty strong amount of foolish neoliberalism, nasty neoliberalism, but it can never go as far along with that because we just there's just cert- certain things that it's going to be much more t- difficult to take off Australian working people and that some of the migration story is a story that you could be really hopeful about. So, yeah, I think we're in big trouble and there's going to be this re- nasty revanchivist attempt to hold on to something like an old Australia. But I, 
I, I can understand that there would be people who would say, look, we do also have a chance to keep some amount of good government and good inclusion as we come into the crisis. I don't know, though. If we mm. took a straw poll in the room. Oh, well, I think, like, I'm, I'm the person on – I feel like I'm assuming the um, No Hope for Australia's Future role on the panel. <laughs> that's the um. purpose of coming out tonight, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I think that's all we have time for. That's a lovely place to end it. Um, <laughs> it like, gets worse. For real, like, it's – with climate, the stuckness is there's, – um, there's a level of, like – I think I'd look for fiction in climate change because I'm just so stuck in this like sense of self, bigger thing. What do I do? What's going on? Who am I? Does and do I need to recycle? What's it's all this stuff is going on with with regards to this. But yeah, I think that's where we look for fiction because I read your books because I'm thinking about this all the time and it's interesting and it's also terrifying. But there's also a sense of you know. With your novel, um, it was fascinating and interesting to go into it thinking about climate and but just reading a real interesting story about motherhood and family and relationships. And Sean, your book, like The Voices, made me laugh so much. I found people that I was horrified by, but I was just laughing at their turn of phrase. Um, so thank you both so much. Um, thank you for helping me unthread this clearly very like difficult conversation that I always have with myself in my life. Thank you all for um, listening to us talk. I had a fascinating conversation. Thank I hope you. it was as interesting to you as it was to me. That was Khalid Warsam, Sean O'Byrne and Alice Robinson at the Climate Change and Fiction panel recorded live at Fitzroy Writers Festival. Yarra Libraries has many free events and programs for the benefit of local communities and visitors to the area. If you aren't a member already, please join up. The Ewing Trust is a fund that allows the special and unique programming at Fitzroy Library and promotes libraries, literature and a lifelong love of learning in Fitzroy. Thank you to the Ewing Trust for making Fitzroy Writers Festival possible. Please subscribe, like and share the Yarra Libraries podcast.